This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Let's pray. May your spirit, dear Lord, take the things of Christ and show them unto us that we may love you anew and afresh and that our hearts may burn within us for the things of Christ and that we might be a better people and good news and even better church. In Jesus' name, amen. We got into Daniel 5 last week, Daniel's ability to read and interpret the handwriting on the wall. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, we saw that the wicked king Belshazzar, in the midst of a feast, Herodotus tells us it was his birthday, but in the midst of a feast, he sent for all of the vessels that had been put up by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon which he had taken from the uh, temple years ago. And uh, they got them out and they start drinking out of them, the king and his concubines and his officials and his wives. And uh, they praise the gods of gold and silver and brass and iron and stone and wood. And uh, God said, that's it. And there was a message of doom. Fingers detached from a hand wrote a message on the plaster on the wall in the banquet hall. And uh, the whole assembly was terrified. We said last week that the same hand that wrote on the wall wrote on the ground in John 8. Matthew Henry said, God's written word is sufficient to put the proudest, boldest sinner into a fright. And Belshazzar melted with fear. Well, we pick up the story now in verses 10 through 16 of chapter 5. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house. And the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. Many commentators think that this was the famous queen, Natakris, wife of Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, and... Uh, and uh, who, was a, who was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and a very influential lady in the court, according to history. And many people think that this was um, Natakris. Uh, John Whitcomb happens to feel it was Amitus, uh, the uh, queen of Nebuchadnezzar who came from Media and missed the valleys and the hills of her land, and so, Nebuchadnezzar built the famous hanging gardens for her. But most, most interpreters think this could well be Natakris. And she uh, comes to the fore at a very critical time at the end of uh, the Babylonian Empire. And she says to Belshazzar, there is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him whom the king Nebuchadnezzar thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, forasmuch as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel, 
whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. God has a way of bringing his people to the fore when he needs them at critical special times, as we see in the case of Daniel. Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake unto him and said, Art thou that Daniel, which art of the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jewry? I have even heard of thee, that the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. He said, Are you that Daniel? As I read that again, my thinking went back to Exodus chapter 6, where a genealogy is being given of Moses' tribe of Levi in connection with the confrontation of Pharaoh and the call for the exodus out of Egypt. And in connection with the genealogy of Levi, as Moses and Aaron, these great leaders, are being introduced into the genealogy, Notice what we read in Exodus 6, 26 and 27. These are that Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are they which spake to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are that Moses and Aaron. In other words, here are these people God's greatly using who just happened to come at this point in the genealogy, and I want to call your attention to it. And I thought of that when we read, this is that Daniel. He just happens to come into the picture here, but he's a very special person. And God loves to honor, in his own way and time, great men in church history. I think of David Livingston's brother, John. He became a great um, financier, uh, one of the wealthiest men, I think, in Canada. And uh, when he died, it was said, here lies the brother of David Livingston. David Livingston, the great missionary, uh, hidden away in Africa for so many years, but uh, he was the brother of David Livingston, though a very famous man in the field of business. When David Livingston died, one of the newspapers in England carried this banner headline, Granite may crumble, this is Livingstone, or Livingston. And Daniel 12.3 says God wants to honor all of his people throughout eternity. The stars in Christ's right hand in Revelation are the seven angels or messengers, very possibly the pastors of the churches. God's people doing God's work are the stars that light up our Savior sky. And we read in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, that they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Well, speaking of that same Daniel, that Daniel or that same Moses and Aaron, my thinking just today went to that same Jesus. <laughs> Acts 2.36, Peter preaches at Pentecost and he says that that same Jesus let all the house of Israel know assuredly 
that that same Jesus whom ye crucified is both Lord and Christ. Um, and God raised him from the dead. So uh, God's going to eventually um, point out those among us who have served God faithfully, that same Daniel, that same Moses, that same Aaron, that same Jesus. And speaking about those in Hebrews 11, whose persecutors thought that they were such bad people, that they tried to run them off the face of the earth. And they wandered about in sheepskins and in goatskins and in deserts and in mountains and in holes and caves of the earth. But then this parenthetical comment of whom the world was not worthy. They tried to run them off the earth, but the world was not worthy of them in the true balance of things. Jesus said, blessed are they that are meek and Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. You would think everybody would love to be around people like that. But the next beatitude says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are ye when men shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, as if it would be good if you could be gotten rid of. But then he says, Ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are the light of the world. People that you would think the world would appreciate, they don't. And they speak all manner of evil against them. And yet Jesus says in the true and final analysis, ye are the salt of the earth. Ye are a city set on a hill. Ye are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We read uh, in verse 15, and now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But they could not show the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of thee that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck and shalt be the third ruler in the kingdom. How gladly worldly men turn in hours of crisis to spiritual men who draw upon unseen resources and bear themselves with calm and unruffled peace in times of crisis. With the wings of the angel of death overshadowing that awestruck throng. It was of small importance that Belshazzar promised to the one who could interpret the writing, the purple robe and the chain of gold. And so notice what we read in verses 17 through 28. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. Daniel, in verses 17 to 28, brings a strong sermon to Belshazzar the king. I would almost, I've sometimes said to our college students over the years, 
We need to be edified, we need to be encouraged, we need to be built up week by week. But every so often we needed a good evangelist in our church to just skin us alive some. Well, Belshazzar needed to be skinned alive and uh, Daniel uh, very effectively did it. He preached boldly to this king. This man held Daniel's life in his hand, but God brought him to the fore and he spoke boldly. Daniel preached a very poignant and powerful sermon to Belshazzar. He reminded him of Nebuchadnezzar's position in verse 18. O thou king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And then he reminded him of his power. His position in verse 18, his power in verse 19. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him whom he would he slew, and whom he would he kept alive, and whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. And then he reminds him of Nebuchadnezzar's pride in verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And then we read of his punishment in verse 21. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beast's, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointed over it whomsoever he would. Matthew Henry makes, I think, a very insightful and important observation about this. He says, Nebuchadnezzar continued like a brute till he knew and embraced the first principle of religion, that the Most High God rules. And it is rather by religion than by reason that man is distinguished from and dignified above the beasts. And it is more his honor to be a subject to the Supreme Creator than lord over the inferior creatures. Kings must know or shall be made to know that the most high God ruleth in the kingdom of men. Daniel goes on to say, and thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knew all this. Dr. Long Stole some of my thunder earlier. Not that there's a lot of thunder to go around. <laughs> but uh, George Santayana made the well-known statement that those who refuse to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And uh, you should have learned a valuable lesson from what happened in Nebuchadnezzar so that God would not have to teach you the hard way. It is said that a wise man learns from other people's experiences. The average person learns from his own experiences, but a fool learns from nobody's experiences. And he says to him concerning Nebuchadnezzar's remarkable experience, though thou knewest all this. A lot of people try to say that the Bible's not that accurate historically, and uh, they kind of just put the words into the story they wanted, that they sounded nice and religious, and uh, maybe some of these things happened, maybe some didn't. But notice, 
the Bible takes the history it records very seriously. Daniel, looking back to an incident that happened years ago, says this is still common knowledge in the court and throughout the country. Thou knewest all this. You knew everything that happened to Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 4. This is common knowledge. And so often when the Bible talks about its history, it appeals to those that it's talking to and saying, you all know this. Now, you don't put the ball in somebody's court if he's going to throw it right back at you. I think of Peter's message on Pentecost in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Thousands standing there. And Peter said, Jesus did all these miracles. He was resurrected less than two months ago. This is common knowledge. There was no danger in Peter's thinking. They would say, we never saw him open the eyes of the blind. We never saw him heal the lame. We never saw him uh, feed the 5,000. It was common knowledge. There was a historical consciousness that at this time these great events happened. They are duly noted, duly recorded. And he puts the ball in their court. He says, as ye yourselves also know. Paul would say to Agrippa, these things were not done in a corner. This is common knowledge I'm drawing upon. I'm not making this up. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.16, concerning the transfiguration, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's great to know that our faith is founded on fact. The Bible documents the divine. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The Bible, and this is one reason that's such a wonderful book, the Bible records the great acts of God as the plain facts of history. He goes on to say to him, But hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives and thy concubines, have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, Hast thou not glorified? God held his very breath in his hand, and here he is insulting him and daring him. He's gambling with his very soul. I think of an illustration that Augustus Hopkins Strong uses in the systematic theology. He talks about a man who saved up a lot of money over the years, and then he took all of his wealth, and he bought a precious diamond, a very valuable diamond. It represented his entire life savings. And he was on the deck of a ship during a voyage, and very flippantly and cavalier, he just flipped the diamond up in the air and caught it. Everybody was like, <gasps> and he just flipped it up in the air and caught it, just wanting to show off. But one time when he threw it up in the air, he didn't catch it and sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Everything was lost. And Strong says, 
That's what people in the world do with their precious soul. They just toss it up and down and gamble with it and uh, think they've got all the time in the world and don't take the things of eternity seriously. When Jesus said, what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? He goes on to say, then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the writing that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin. This is the interpretation of the thing, Mene. God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. I have allowed you to be here this long, and now you're gone. I think one of the best prayers we can ever pray when we consider the length of eternity and the brevity of time, is Psalm 90 and verse 12. I had the privilege of serving a church in Georgia back in the 1970s. And they had a ladies' missionary prayer circle in the home of uh, Marvin Wilson. And that prayer circle, as they ended their meetings, always did the same thing. The ladies would meet in the center of the living room floor and they would join hands and they would pray the words of Psalm 90, 12 together. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Death is sure, the time obscure, Belshazzar forgot that. Daniel goes on to say, Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Romans 3.23 puts it like this, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have fallen short of God's standards and we come up wanting when weighed in his scales. This is true not only of Belshazzar, but of all men who desperately need the Savior. Peres, the kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then we come to verses 29 through 31. Then commanded Belshazzar, he was true to his word here, then commanded Belshazzar and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made, him a, procla made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. The same night, the Medo-Persian armies marched into Babylon, slew Belshazzar, and seized world dominion. Darius the Median became the ruler of the kingdom of silver. The overthrow of Babylon took place the night of the 16th of Tishri, seventh month of the Jewish calendar, on our calendar, October 12th, 539 BC. Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled that very night. Cyrus's general, Gobirus, and his men were on the inside of the inner city before the guards had even detected that anything was wrong. 
The takeover was lightning quick. In a future day, another Babylon will fall by the hand of God. Thus will end man's vaunted civilization. And we read about that fall in the book of Revelation, chapter 18. Babylon, Babylon has fallen in one hour. Then we come to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel's divine deliverance from the lion's den. Daniel's divine deliverance from the lion's den. The new king, Darius, appoints 120 princes to govern and manage the empire, and he puts three presidents over them. The leading one is Daniel. And Daniel is such a gifted and wise administrator with so much integrity, he's thinking of putting them over the entire realm, just under himself. And the other presidents and all the princes are green with jealousy, and they try to hatch a plot to get rid of Daniel and make him look bad before the king. And they try to, first of all, find something in Daniel's official work that they could dig up on. Uh, it has been said that uh, if you want your family history to be traced for free, run for public office. They tried everything they could to uh, dig up dirt on him, and they couldn't find any. And they said, the only way we're going to be able to get at Daniel is if we can use his religion to bring him in conflict with the state because his service is admirable. We can't find any semblance of attack. And so they hatch a scheme, and they, they appeal to the vanity of the king. And they say, we have gotten together and we think it's a great idea that we have a decree that no person can bring a formal petition to any god or man anywhere throughout the empire within the next 30 days, but before you, okay. And uh, let's seal it with the uh, king's uh, signature and seal. Uh, and uh, the law of the Medes and the Persians can't be altered. And anybody who defies the decree will be thrown into the den of hungry lions. And Darius says, um, I like that idea. And he goes along with it, not really thinking it through very much. Well, then Daniel's accusers, knowing he's consistent in his testimony, come to his house and to his upper chamber at the very time he's kneeling and praying to God with his window open to Jerusalem. And they accuse him and they, they bring him before Darius and they say he's broken the decree, he was praying to God and nobody's supposed to bring any petition uh, before any God or man but you for the next 30 days so he needs to be thrown in the den of lions. And then Darius realizes he's been had. He loved Daniel, he didn't want to see him harmed in any way but he saw how they set the trap for him and he labored very hard to try to find a way out for Daniel. But the accuser said, this is official law. When a king signs a decree, he can't change it. And he labored so hard to try to find the legal loophole, but he couldn't. And so very, very sadly, he gave in, and Daniel was put in the den of lions, and uh, a stone was uh, placed over the entrance. 
And the king was miserable and he went to bed and uh, couldn't sleep. Well, actually, he couldn't sleep that night. He, did, he refused any entertainment and he just had a miserable night. But Daniel slept well. And the next morning, he goes to the den of lions, the king does, and cries out with a lamentable voice, hoping there would be some kind of an answer, but, uh, or at least a moan or a groan. But uh, he says, Daniel, is your God whom you serve continually? Is he, was he able to deliver you from the mouths of the lions and out of the doom and darkness of the lion's den? A cheerful, friendly voice arises and says, yes, O king, uh, God has sent his angel and delivered me because I was innocent in his sight and I've done no wrong to the state. And the king's glad. And he has uh, Daniel brought up out of the den and there's no harm at all on him. And then he realizes how his unworthy officials ganged up on Daniel and tried to use him for a fool. And so he orders them and their families to be lowered into the den of lions. And uh, the lions are so hungry because they didn't have anything to eat the night before, if you will, that before they could even reach ground, the lions were on them and broke their bones and start gobbling them up. And then a decree is issued by Darius that there's no God who could deliver like Daniel's God. Let all honor him. And Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and during the reign of Cyrus. That's kind of a quick summary of the chapter. Now, in chapter 4, we read about a mad king. In chapter 5, we read about a bad king. In chapter 6, we read about a sad king. Who was the mad king in chapter 4? Nebuchadnezzar. He went mad for seven years. Who was the bad king in chapter 5? Belshazzar. And who was the sad king in chapter 6? Darius. Uh, he, he hated that Daniel had to go into that lion's den and he feared for him. Question. God delivered Daniel in a different way than he had delivered Samson. How so? God delivered Daniel in a different way than he delivered Samson. How so? Sandy? Okay, let me, let me, that question is probably put too generally. Uh, that question was probably too general. With reference to a lion or lions, God delivered Daniel in a different way than he delivered Samson. How so? With reference to a lion. Okay, very good. Uh, when a lion roared upon Samson, he just tore him apart. But uh, when Daniel was put into the den of hungry lions, God shut their mouths and uh, things were perfectly peaceful. So God can deliver in different ways, uh, but praise his name uh, in his creative deliverances to us. Let's read chapter 6, 1 through 5. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes which should be over the whole kingdom and over these three presidents of whom Daniel was the first that the princes might give a counsel unto them and the king should have no damage. 
Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, something in his official duties that they could lay hold of and charge him, but they couldn't find anything. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. He had integrity. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Now notice how envious these presidents and these princes were. Alexander Pope wrote, all human virtue to its latest breath finds envy never conquered but by death. All human virtue to its latest breath finds envy never conquered but by death. Well, I guess you could say it can be conquered by a 1 Corinthians 13 love, because love envy if not. But humanly speaking, envy can be such a problem for so many, not only outside the church, but even inside the church. I heard uh, Brother Roger Martin speaking at a chapel and he was preaching on Barnabas in Acts chapter 11. And he talked about how Barnabas started out on the first missionary journey and he was kind of the leader, but eventually Paul, through his natural leadership, rose to the top. And Barnabas, noble Barnabas, was magnificent in just playing the supporting role and still doing a great job as part of the missionary team. And uh, Roger Martin was commending Barnabas for that. The great conductor for many years of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, Leonard Bernstein, was once asked, which is the hardest instrument to play? And he replied, second fiddle. It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. And these people were full of envy because they wanted to be first and not Daniel. I have heard for many years of Houghton College in New York State. Maybe some of you have heard of it. Uh, uh, for many years, um, just training some bi wonderful Bible teachers. Have you heard of Houghton? My son went there. Did he? Wonderful. Uh, I, I uh, looked into that possibility myself a little bit when I was uh, considering colleges and all. Uh, fine school. Well, I found out later, it was named after a man named Will Houghton. And uh, there was this man who wanted to bring Houghton down. And so he hired a private investigator. And he said, you follow him wherever he goes. You uh, check into all of his contacts, all the places he goes. Uh, you, you, you stayed glued to him. So we can dig up some dirt on him and bring him down. And after several weeks, the private investigator reported back to the enemy. And he said, I can't find anything. He doesn't go to any places of ill repute. His behavior's above board. He really is the real deal. He is the Christian he claims to be. I can't find anything on him. Well, they tried so hard, but they couldn't find anything on Daniel. But that's not always the case with people in positions of Christian leadership. 
I will try not to use the name of this organization, though I was a member of it. And I, I believe it's under new management now and is uh, doing well from what I can tell, but I remember so vividly uh, there was a ministry among Christians that uh, you could join this ministry and it wasn't an insurance company, but uh, it kind of was a Christian version of an insurance company. You, they had kind of strict standards for you to become a member like you, uh, they didn't want you to you know, drink or smoke and uh, you had to you know, uh, have Christian lifestyle and all. And what they would do is you would pay in a certain amount of money each month, a reasonable amount, they kept their costs down and all, but you would pay in a certain amount of money each month you'd be to a member who had a medical need. Christians paid each other's bills. It wasn't an insurance company and they had certain guidelines and all, but a need would be published. And I remember when we had a medical need as a family, it seemed to be taking a long time for our need to be published. Uh, normally it was supposed to be published in the next month's edition. Two, three months went by and um, uh, our need wasn't published. And I was wondering what was happening. I called a prayer warrior friend and asked them to pray. And uh, shortly after he prayed, we were able to get through to the company and they did meet the bill. But apparently there were some problems with funds, apparently. And then there was the bombshell revelation that uh, the person at the top was pilfering off some of the money and using it for worldly purposes. I, think even had some kind of a dance girl or something that was involved and it was a mess and uh, hit the fan and um, the attorney general of Ohio prosecuted and uh, it was a mess. I believe the company is, I believe the, I believe the organization is now up and running under better leadership but, but uh, I remember they would publish these letters about talk about compassion and Christian giving and caring for hurting people and all the time the money was faithfully sent in and you could send in special gifts to, here was the money being pilfered to worldly purposes. Um, and finally it hit the fan and it was discovered and it was a scandal. Uh, but they were not able to get dirt like that on Daniel. Uh, he was a man of God and his testimony rang true. Now it's one thing to get into trouble for disobeying God, but it's another thing to get into trouble for obeying God. When you get home, read 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, where he talks about don't suffer as an evildoer like a murderer or a thief or a gossip. He said, but if any man suffers as a Christian, he says, uh, this is glorifying to God. And he says, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their soul to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. He speaks about if you suffer because you're doing right as a Christian, that's praiseworthy. That glorifies God. He says, don't suffer because you're just getting what's coming to you because of your sinful behavior. But he says, if a man suffers because he's a Christian, because of his stand for God, Jesus says, blessed are ye. And Daniel was persecuted because he took a stand for God, not because they could find flaws in his character. 
What a testimony he had. Even Daniel's enemies knew he would be consistent in his devotion to God no matter what. Can God stake his reputation on your testimony? Remember in Job 1.8, God said to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, and one that feareth God, the skew of evil? And he follows up on that in chapter 2, verse 3 of Job, and says to Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, and one that feareth God, and a skew of evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause." Can God stake his reputation on your testimony and win the contest with Satan before the assembled intelligence of the invisible world? Is there anything in the world, if there is anything in the world, the world should accuse us of, it should be that we are faithful. May bishops be blameless and all God's people as well. May bishops be blameless, 1 Timothy 3, 7, and all God's people as well, Philippians 2, 14 through 16. We must obey God for the sake of, we must obey man for the sake of God. Be subject to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, Romans 13. But we must not disobey God for the sake of man, Acts 4 and 5. We must obey God rather than man, if it comes down to that. We must obey man for the sake of God, Romans 13. Not disobey God for the sake of man, Acts 4 and 5. Then we come to verses 6 through 9 in Daniel 5. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto, king, unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. Do you, how many of you are old enough and are willing to admit it? How many of you remember a program that came on TV in the afternoon called Queen for a Day? Remember Queen for a Day? These different ladies would tell their stories about why they had a special need and how they needed help. And the one whose story was the best was crowned king for the, queen for a day. And they put a robe around her and they brought her flowers. and She was crowned and they did nice things for her. And uh, that program was called Queen for a Day. Well, Darius wanted to be made God for a month. And he wanted people to only pray to him. Discovery has been made in Babylon of such a place that is this lion's den with this inscription. The place of execution where men who angered the king died torn by wild beasts. Archaeology found that den. Could be the very same den. If the law of the Medes and Persians altereth not, then what can we say about the law of God? 
that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 5, 18. Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. If the law of the Medes and Persians supposedly altereth not, what shall we say about God's unchangeable word? Every jot and tittle of which shall outlast the present heavens and earth. I was talking to a Baptist leader a number of years ago, and he said, you don't really think Jesus believed in the verbal inspiration of the Bible like fundamentalists do. Now, when we say that we believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible, let me be clear. We're not saying that God inspired only the verbs and not the nouns. That's not what we're saying. But the word verb comes into the Latin from the English, and the Latin word for word is verb. So when we say we believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible, we're saying we believe in the word-for-word inspiration of the Bible, that God inspired every word. Now, I'd like to say to you tonight, my friends, Jesus not only believed in the verbal inspiration of the Bible, Jesus believed in the tittle inspiration of the Bible. He said, one jot or tittle would no wise pass away, you know, till all these things would be fulfilled. Uh, in effect, he said. A tittle comes from a Greek word that means horn and referred to a little horn-like structure or stroke of the pen that the Hebrew scribes would put on one Hebrew letter to help distinguish it from another Hebrew letter that looked a lot like it so the scribes wouldn't put down the wrong word in copying the manuscripts. Sort of like the Q, the tail on our Q distinguishes it from an O. Sort of like the slanted leg of the R distinguishes it from a P. Sort of like the bottom line of an E distinguishes it from an F. Sort of like that. It wasn't even a letter. It was a mere stroke of the pen that helped distinguish one letter from another letter. But Jesus says even that is fully inspired. Jesus not only believed, if you please, in verbal inspiration, he believed in tittle inspiration. He believed God gave every word. And so when you believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible, you're in the best of company. That was the position of the Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And as 1 Peter 1.25 puts it, And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. I subscribe to the advice of Matthew Henry, who said, Stand upon the word of God because even a dwarf standing on a mountain can see a whole lot farther than a giant standing in the valley. <laughs> then in verses 10 through 18, because of time, I will not read that, but because in verses 10 through 18, Darius tries so hard to deliver Daniel, he prays faithfully. He opens his window to Jerusalem and prays morning, evening, at night, three times a day, praising God and bringing petitions and thanking God. And his accusers gather when he's doing that and accuse him. King Darius tries very hard to find a loophole and he can't. And Daniel is thrown into the den of lions and Darius spends a miserable night worrying about Daniel. Somebody said, as long as there are tests, there will always be prayer in school. <laughs> Daniel believes in prayer. 
Daniel's faith did not start in the lion's den, but in his prayer closet. Daniel's times of prayer were more important to him than life itself. When he knew that the king's decree was signed, verse 10, he still continued praying as he always did. Most of us, it has been said, would have nothing to worry about. We pray so little, but uh, they were able to catch Daniel in prayer. F.B. Meyer says, see to it that your windows are always open to the new Jerusalem, of which you are a citizen, but from which for a little while now you are exiled. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, for our conversation, but there is a special Greek word there that means fatherland or citizenship, not the normal word translated conversation, which means manner of life. For your citizenship, for your fatherland is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is even able to subdue all things unto himself. Our citizenship is in heaven, and that's where we look. Daniel looked to Jerusalem. He opened his window to Jerusalem. We, as it were, pray to our Father and towards the new Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 6, 38 and 39, Solomon in his prayer dedicating the temple said, whenever your people are in captivity and they pray to this uh, land and to this city and to this house, hear their prayers and forgive them. And that's what Daniel was doing. Jonah had promised in an hour of utter desperation to look again toward thy holy temple. Jonah 2.4, from the stomach of a whale, even though it must have been difficult in his situation to know in which direction to look, but he still wanted to look to the temple. The psalmist says in Psalm 55.17, evening, morning, and at noon, will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. And Daniel's doing this, praying three times a day. Darius was greatly upset, verse 14, not with Daniel, but with himself in being tricked and putting Daniel in that terrible situation. Beware of men who flatter you in order to get you to do their bidding and trap you. A flatterer resembles a friend like a wolf resembles a dog. Oh, we need encouragement, don't get me wrong. Mark Crane said, I can go a whole two months on one kind word. But make sure that we don't let any encouraging words lift us up in pride. I think a good prayer when somebody encourages us is, Lord, may these kind words go only to my knees and help me to just want to serve you more. And cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 115.1, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. For as Jesus said, without me, ye can do nothing. The king's servants tied the king's hands with his own law. The king of heaven, unlike Darius, never gets into a bind with his binding laws. He is, to use a theological word, sovereign. The king didn't sleep that night, but Daniel did. He may have curled up on a soft lion's mane and gone fast asleep, is Dr. Cole's suggestion. 
We read in 1 Peter 4.19 that when we suffer affliction, we are to commit the keeping of our souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. David's son was in open rebellion against him and hunting for his life in Psalms 3 and 4. And yet we read in Psalm 3, 5, I will lay me down. He, he said, I will lay me down and sleep. I, he said, I laid me down and slept. I awaked uh, for the Lord sustained me. And then 4, 8, he said, uh, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep uh, for God only will uh, give him peace. It's from that prayer in 3, 5 that we get the children's uh, prayer at bedtime, now I lay me down to sleep, where he said, I will lay me down and sleep and awake. I laid me down and slept, I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. Darius cries out in verse 20, has thy God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you? Question, do you serve God continually or conveniently? Paul says we need to be instant in season and out of season. Out of the blackness of the den of doom, there comes a cheerful and clear voice. Darius cries with a lamentable voice. Daniel, are you okay? Seriously doubting whether he'd get a response. And Daniel says, I'm fine, king. God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. Through faith, Daniel stopped the mouths of lions, Hebrews 11.33. When God delivers supernaturally, he does a complete work. There was no scratch or bite on him. Preachers might preach a sermon on Daniel 6 and call it living with the lions. See the power of God over the fiercest creatures and believe his power to restrain the roaring lion that goes about continually seeking to devour from hurting those who are his. Thrown into the den of lions, Daniel fell into the arms of the living God underneath are the everlasting arms. Who else can turn a lion's den into a petting zoo? The world cannot breed a lion that God cannot tame. Why wasn't Daniel scared in the lion's den? Because he knew the lion of Judah was with him. When the lions started to lick their chops, the angel of the Lord said, don't you even think about it. And the lions didn't eat Daniel because they could find nothing but backbone. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.